this is the actual book that all those years ago in 1508, when Tritemius was condemning these uh, demonic texts, when you look at someone making a very bad book list, the more they condemn it, that's kind of a little wink wink that maybe the more you need to look at it. Speak the charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnomancy Podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult, esotericism, and the paranormal. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to the Arnomancy Podcast. My guest today is Alexander F., host of the Esoteric Glitch Bottle Podcast, which covers topics we're all curious about, such as magic and mysticism and grimoires and necromancy and other mysteries of our weird universe. Uh, Alexander is also a classical ceremonial magician and a researcher into grimoires and all of this great stuff. And now... Help us ruminate on the rare, and let's welcome Alexander F. Eric, I cannot tell you how excited and honored I am to be on the Arnomancy podcast. Are you kidding me? I, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you for being here. I feel like, uh, you know, likewise, your podcast has been uh, inspirational. Um, I was kind of like looking back through the history of your podcast just to kind of get a picture of, you know, how you started and what you were doing early on, and I realized that we both released sort of our first episodes around the same time. Because I had a podcast before Arnomancy called My Alchemical Bromance. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Our first episodes came out within like months of each other. That is so nuts. I didn't even realize that, but I totally, I totally uh, was very familiar with My Chemical Bromance. Absolutely. You know, you have a background in radio, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. And I knew zero things about doing audio processing at all so it was kind of like um <laughs> you know your 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 early episodes sounded way better than mine <laughs> but uh but also in addition to that like when you started in 2017 i think is when your first episodes came out you had like this all-star guest list like just right out of the gate you had fraderash and chasson uh aaron and carrie leach I hope that's how you uh, Leech, yes, Leech, Leech, Leech yes. Uh, you yes. had Dan Attrell, you had Jake Stratton-Kent and Rufus Opus, David Heim Smith, Joseph Peterson, Stephen Skinner, and then like a bunch of other people that I'm not, you know, that probably aren't as famous as these sort of like this rogues gallery of wizards here. How did you get awesome guests so quickly? I think it was just being extremely curious and just persistent i i remember around that time it was about for me it was about 2015 when i first started getting into ceremonial magic in general as a historical tributary uh for years before that i had gotten into the grimoires and kind of learned a little bit in fact and this is uh quoting i think you gave one of your in, in one of your episodes one of your previous episodes I think you rated one of your guests by like poke runions. And I think you gave oh, yeah. like T Su T Susie Chang like five out of five poke runions. <laughs> and which I think is amazing. And I I actually believe it or not, one of the first times that I really years and years ago first heard about the Lamegatons Goetia was through Poke Runyon of all people. The Ooh, his video? Yes, the video. Oh, the Secrets yes. of Solomon, I believe. Oh Something my god, like I that. love that video. 
<laughs> yes. And I didn't know at the time. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the, I mean, that video came out, I think in 1996 and it was the early 2000s and just watching that video. I didn't know at the time that he was, he was blending so many things. He was, he mm-hmm. was taking things from the golden dawn and he was putting in Phoenician alphabets instead of Hebrew. And he was just kind of doing all of these things that, that were not part of the original quote unquote quote, cause everything borrows from everything. Lamegaton's Goetia from 1641. But watching that, I was like, Whoa, what, what is this? Like it just kind of, you know, blew my mind. And so around 2015, 2016, I remember in some of the online forums, I would see these. Uh, I, I remember one of the first times that I saw a post by Dr. Stephen Skinner or Frater Ash and Chassan or, or Aaron Leach. And they were talking about practicing these things consistently, doing it, sharing results and doing things over time. And so the podcast kind of came about where I was like, no one is going to listen to this podcast. I said, but maybe I can at least just ask one of them, you know, maybe Frater Chassan or Dr. Skinner or maybe Aaron Leach, just, just, hey, I, I've been reading your books and I have a couple of questions. Do you want to talk about it? And I thought maybe no one would really want to listen to it, but it just kind of had a snowball effect around the kind of around that time where I was just amazed that there were so many people who I didn't, who I guess even years before that in the early 2000s, 2009, 10 were on all these forums and we're just talking about things. So yeah, it was a, it was really interesting. So I think just, it, it just kind of had this little snowball effect where one thing kind of led to the other in a strange way, I think. Yeah. So like the, when the grimoire stuff started taking off again, and you were saying before you, that you, or before we started recording, you were sort of like dating that back to Joseph Peterson's uh, release of the uh, Lamegaton or what yeah, was it? he had yes, it, it was the entire Lamegaton. So all all five books: the Goetia, the Goetia, the Arsalmodel, the Theurgia Goetia, the Arsenatoria, the, the big Ars silver one, right? That was a big silver book. I think so. My copy is pardon me while I just totally adjust. It is a green. It's like a pale green book. Oh, um, from two thousand one. I think that's the one I got too. Uh, mine has like a dust jacket on it, though. I can just see the spine from here. <laughs> there were no good uh, editions, so people would have like old copies or like you know that weird blue paperback from you know the Key of Solomon or whatever, or they'd have like the really old Mather. You know, it was all Mather's translations. You know, and um, it was hard to yes. trust Mather's. A lot of ceremonial magicians, I think, were doing kind of like self-initiate. They were either getting initiated into Golden Dawn stuff or doing like self-initiation with Golden Dawn stuff. And everybody was doing the LBRP and, you know, learning how to vibrate and visualize and all this stuff that was just totally like 19th century lodge magic, basically. Right. And I don't get me wrong. Like, I think in the 70s, like Dr. Stephen Skinner wrote uh, techniques of high magic and self-initiation and things like that. So things were things were kind of there all throughout those years. But, yeah, I think it was. And, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, because I think you definitely had books between the early 1900s and 2001, of course, like, uh, you know, I'm sure. And the, of course the poke Runyon videos, which oh, we yeah. cannot forget. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, something seemed to take off. And and just from my own idiosyncratic perspective, like you had Joseph H. Peterson putting out books, you had Aaron Leach writing secrets of the magical grimoires. You had John King with Imperial arts, you had all these books. And then I think, I think Dr. Skinner and David Rankin started 
publishing their Source Works of Ceremonial Magic series, which had the um, magician's tables, the Yanua Magica Reserata, you know, the the keys to the gateways of magic, and then Dr. Rudd's Goetia. And all this was like 2005, 2006, 2007. And so I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, because it does seem in the last 15 years or so, we've really seen this kind of explosion of information available obviously joseph oh, h yeah. peterson with esoteric with his, archives oh, i mean yeah. amazing it's yeah. i feel like there there were a couple of years where i wasn't really paying attention to like ceremonial magic on the internet or doing a whole lot of occult stuff on the internet and i come back and all of a sudden it's just grimoires everywhere um, yeah. I, th- that's what yep. it felt like it felt like with the rise of facebook the all of the grimoire magic groups just sort of exploded and uh, but I mean, it was it was so awesome to see, and we're and there's a lot of. I still feel like that kind of. I, I'm going to call it a subculture. It, we we're already a tiny subculture. Occultists are not a large group, but like the grimoire group inside of the group of occultists, I feel like we're still experiencing a lot of churn. We're kind of having this Hegelian back and forth where you have like grimoire purists and chaos magicians who are like hoodoo practitioners or folk practitioners who are using like, um, you know, the key of Solomon talismans and not following any of the other directions. And there's just this sort of like back and forth happening where you have like loud people on either side being like, you don't have to follow the rules or you have to follow all of the rules. And it's fascinating to see. It's fascinating to sort of be on the outside. I'm, I mean, I guess I'm not on the outside. It's fascinating to have like very early on, you know, I, I was really fortunate in having, um, John Michael Greer is a next door neighbor when I was uh, a baby. Wow, wizard. no yeah. way. That's awesome. Yeah, so I got exposed to doing stuff out of uh, Grippa, like probably in 2003 or 2004. And um, I remember he was sort of running me through how to make planetary talismans. And this was before anybody had really started to figure out electional astrology again. So I don't remember us. I mean, he he like ran me through like how to cast a chart and that sort of stuff. But I don't remember ever talking to him about elections. We just sort of talked about the design of talismans and how you do it. And I remember at some point I was like, you know, John, I've been, I didn't call him John. What did I call him? I probably called him John Michael. I was like, you know, John Michael, I've been reading, uh, I've been reading the Golden Dawn Black Book, which had instructions on how to do this stuff. I've been reading Agrippa, you know, all the pages that you pointed out and all the sections you pointed out. I can't find a single ritual. What, what, what's the ritual for like consecrating these? I just remember someone looking at me and saying, oh, just make it up. I was like, what? He says, you have to remember, somebody made all this stuff up or made all this up originally anyhow. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right. I mean, I guess (laughs) because you got two choices. You got the choice where that that like there are texts that are divinely inspired, in which case we should probably be reading the Bible and the Quran and all that kind of stuff. Or you've got wizards making shit up. Right. Well, and that's that brings up a really good point because one of the things that really fascinated me about the history of ceremonial magic and the quote unquote, and I'm, I'm using quotes because such a broad swath, but the, you know, mm-hmm. Western ceremonial magic is you know looking at like Dr. Skinner's techniques of Solomonic magic and tracing the history. He makes a pretty convincing argument that it's it's really not necessarily just making stuff up in terms of. Uh, making up unique novel things, but rather, right. you know, tracing the technology. So, for instance, things like a consecrated magical circle, a phylactery, a procedure of invocation and using nomina magica or barbarous names, a constraining, ha- has fingerprints 
stretching from Alexandria in the year, you know, 100 AD, all the way through the Byzantine Empire, to the, through the Roman Empire, into Europe. And so there is that, there is that element, Eric, as you say, of innovation. Absolutely. In fact, I remember when Dr. Sophie Page, I remember chatting with her and, and she mentioned that a lot of the times when you look at like a, a grimoire from the Middle Ages, us now, we look back at those grimoires and we go, ah, how can I replicate that exactly how it is? But at the time, it was not that way at all. In fact, there's a huge element to your point, Eric, about innovation. There was, there, mm-hmm. there really was a, a lot of that blending. So you're right. It's, it's kind of like both. There's this tradition and this transmission of technique that's definitely similar through 2000 years. And even though, as you said, religions change and cultures change, the names of the spirits change, but the procedure, the techniques seem to be the same. But at the same time, to your point, there is a lot of that innovation. I mean, for instance, so many people want to know, how can I practice, you know, Enochian magic or Enochian? I don't know if it's, I, I always I forget the proper ways. pronunciation. Uh, oh, if, good. If you're not, <laughs> if, if I'm not paying attention, I'll totally say Enochian. Okay, perfect. Then just between you and me, we'll say Enochian. Okay. But pe- people want to say, how can I practice Enochian magic? But when you look at John Dee, for instance, the one of the centerpieces of Enochian magic, when you look at the great seal of God, well, that seal is very close to the sworn book of Honorius, which was 300 years, you know, in the 1300s. So about mm-hmm. 250 to 300 years before John Dee. And he was just looking for an effective way to, you know, bring in other materia magica to make a very specific system for angelic magic. So, so Eric, I agree with you. Like there is that element of innovation, everything bar. I mean, we could go on a huge tear maybe later on about um, things like the heptameron and the Lamegaton, because that really shows a huge amount of tradition, things kind of staying the same, but also Mm -hmm. a huge, a huge amount of innovation for sure. Yeah, it's true. I guess I, I sometimes think about like our, predecessors, our, our magical predecessors, the people who are writing down these grimoires, they probably were reaching for what they would consider sort of like high tech or the latest tech or whatever was working now. But then all the, also at the same time, you see sort of like um, a lot of sort of shorthand and dumbing down. One of my favorites, uh, I think, oh, I can't remember. The, uh, oh, it was the Boxwood Manual, the Box Glove Manual. It, it was published in 1600. It was in one of those... Uh, uh, Palgrave books that came out a while back, and they yes, released like yes. a, yeah they released like a PDF of the manual on their website, and um, it was a weird combination of like Agrippa and Key of Solomon um, for like planetary talismans, and it had basically like stupid electional astrology, kind of like we know you're not going to do full on electional astrology, so here are the stupidest possible rules you can follow. And and I mean, they didn't say it that way. You know, it was presented as like, this is ancient knowledge. But if you know anything about those, about even Agrippa or the Picatrix or something, you're sort of like, oh, they just, they just stripped these rules down to the, the simplest. But the talismans themselves were incredibly complex and incredibly intricate and very like, you know, filled with Agrippa's seals and angelic names and all that kind of stuff. So it's sort of interesting to see. I mean, maybe that was a a coping thing. They were sort of like, well, we can't do this full electional astrology. So we're just going to add more angels. Yeah. I mean, that, that brings up another really good point because uh, I think, was this before we started recording or after we were talking about the Hygromantia or the Hygromantia mm-hmm. uh, and 
it was interesting because I think it was Dr. Skinner. I can't remember, but for instance, the the consecrated writing implement. Um, before the Key of Solomon, the Latin Key of Solomon in the 13-1400s, the, if you keep going farther and farther back, the consecrated writing implement was a reed, like a, mm-hmm. a reed a cut stylus. But as to your point, exactly, as we kind of evolved and cultures change and times change, it turned into, you know, you must pluck this goose feather at the right time and initiate a consecratory procedure over it. And you have this specific uh, thing. And, you know, your point about astrology is really interesting. And this, this kind of brings up just a whole other, whole other discussion too, because I know that, that, um, magicians have have said that astrology absolutely has a very key place in ceremonial magic historically. But you're right. If you look at a lot of the grimoires, they really have limited astrology. They talk about kind of the core thing. So if you're doing a mercurial operation, ideally having a waxing moon, you know, during the day and hour of Wednesday, for example, um, you know, preferably if mercury is not in its detriment or fall, then that might be a really good time to engage with a mercurial spirit. But you're right that a lot of the more complex astrology seems to derive from a separate tradition, like an Arabic tradition, when we think of, of course, the the Ghayat al-Hakim, the Picatrix, of course, <laughs> which has just amazing, beautiful, I know we were talking about Dan Attrell earlier before we started recording, right? Like Dan and Dr. Liana Safe, they're doing, you know, incredible work there, uh, which is awesome. But you're right. It, it's there does seem to be this kind of change that that happens and this kind of emphasis on on what is the, who or what is the agent of change so for example in astrology if you're consecrating a talisman at the perfect time one could argue that the agent of change is the specific astrological alignment at that time so if you if you calculate everything out you know that from 3:45 a.m. to 347 30 seconds a.m., you have this amount of time to engrave a talisman for Jupiter because all of the stars are aligned. So the specific alignment is the agent of change that imbues this talisman with specific power. Whereas in the ceremonial magic side, the agent of change isn't, astrology plays a part, but the agent of change, instead of being the exact alignment of every single planet, it's the spirit itself. And I think one of the interesting things that you see is uh, and th- I'm thinking here of drawing spirits into crystals from the early 1800s. Even though it's attributed to Tritemius, we haven't really found a Latin manuscript yet from 15, you know, 08. So uh, we'll say it's just Francis Barrett. Um, but one of the questions that you ask, and I know that Frater Ashton Chassan, for example, has you know initiated a lot of these questions too. Is one of the questions oddly is you know, what are the best times that we should call you? What are the most favorable times? And it's like, well, wait a second. All of the hours of the day and night are given, you know, Mercury and you you know, on the on the first, eighth, 15th and 22nd hour, that's that hour of the planet. So that's kind of odd. And so one of the interesting things is like, perhaps in those one-on-one engagements with spirits, the spirit itself will provide feedback. So you may call a mercurial spirit and depending on the relationship you develop over time, what if that spirit wants to be called at a different time? What if there's a certain other element that breaks this kind of stagnated chain, so to speak, of planetary hours? You know, it's just a pretty interesting thing to to think about. I like that theory a lot. I think that you just had like five theories packed into that too. 
you know, at the beginning when you were talking about like the difference between like pure astrological magic and then introducing sort of the ceremonial stuff, like I think that makes a ton of sense the way you the way you said that, you know. Um, but then, you know, even going on, like, you know, forming individual relationships with the various spirits or having that sort of like thing happen. Like I've tried that. I've asked those questions and it's been difficult to kind of interpret the answers because it doesn't seem to match planetary days and planetary hours all the time. I guess it would make sense. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and in the Arbitel, for instance, we're told that every spirit we conjure is going to give it its own name and its own sigil and all this kind of stuff. Why not its own time? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things in the most often um, discussed grimoires, we might say, from the 13-1400s, the Book of Abramelin, um, and we can go back to the early French manuscripts, which prescribed a six-month six month operation. We can go to the, the recent Den German manuscripts that show an 18-month operation. But you're so right. In fact, in the Book of Abramelin, one of the interesting things it says is, you know, you, you spend all many, many months trying to contact your holy guardian angel. And in the Book of Abramelin, it gives, you know, specific names of spirits and magical squares, which is a big deal. And, and you know, we, we think back to Mathers and we, we think back 100 years ago to the early French manuscripts that were missing some of the squares. But one of the thing, really interesting things directly to your point, Eric, is in the book of Abramelin, it says, you know, after you make contact, my son, like he's writing to his son throughout the whole book with your holy guardian angel, you won't need me anymore. The guardian angel, your specific contact and relationship with the spirit will tell you how to do the rest. Will will tell you how to work with other spirits. Will tell you how to, if they're perhaps uh, malefic in some way, bind other spirits, work with the four kings. I mean, there's, there's this implication exactly to your point about we have, I think a drive is kind of a human need that everything needs to fit into a neat little correspondence box. And those boxes are important, but as Aaron Leach, I I believe he, he says often is when they call it the key of Solomon, that's, that's all it is. It's a key. All it is, is it allows you to open the door But then once you are in the room, there's a whole room, a gorgeous, amazing room, kind of like what I'm seeing with your amazing uh, office behind me, behind (laughs) you on on the screen. There's this amazing room that is all about your idiosyncratic relationship, exactly to your point, Eric, about things that you're finding out that perhaps do not fit into those rigid structures. But the key, the key of Solomon, the lesser key, the keys to the gateway of magic, that's all they are. They're a key. And so you're right. It really does fall, I think, on on all of us in our own way to use those keys if we like or any other tradition. I think you, you mentioned just a ton of them. It's it's amazing. Whatever works, you know, whatever, whatever tradition you're a part of, whatever gets the results. But I always think about that differently now when I think of the key of Solomon, that all of the answers are not in that one book. There's so right. much more outside it's just of it. A, yeah, it's just a thing to open the door yes hmm. yes and it sounds like you've you've um experienced that with your own spiritual engagements which is just amazing and yeah yeah and it's been different for me too like i haven't done a whole lot of key of solomon stuff just because uh i mean i i came to the grimoire game pretty late you know i've been doing ceremonial magic stuff for for a long time but everybody got started with the grimoires while i was like I don't know, busy doing other stuff. Who knows what I was up to? (laughs) It's a really interesting way to look at it. You know, I really liked 
Joseph Peterson's translation, the the Venetian uh, uh, grimoire from like the 18th century that came came out. I can't remember what he called it. The uh, Yes, I believe you are thinking of the. I'm trying to find it. The Secrets of Solomon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. From the from the Venetian Inquisition from like the 1600s. I'm trying to that hold it right. It, yes. Right there, a witch's handbook yes. and the trials of the. Yeah, I really liked that book. I, one of the things that I enjoyed about it is it did kind of. Um, well, I think it kind of spoke to a lot of the stuff that we've already mentioned. Where this was obviously not the key of Solomon of a wealthy magician, right? Like these guys were you know, cobbling together stuff from other grimoires and, you know, they were, they had a practice, like whatever they were doing, it was a working magician's handbook, but there were no, there were very few like fancy or expensive ingredients or things that required, you know, days and days of preparation and stuff. It was just kind of like, you know, splash some blood on a thing and draw some pentagrams and you're totally set. I mean, it wasn't totally like that. I don't even know if there are pentagrams in it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you hit the nail on the head, though, Eric, because that drives at the heart of magic. I mean, when we look at the PGM, if let's go back 2000 years, it was ruthlessly practical for the most part. And it wasn't really until you get into the post Renaissance, like the 15, 1600s, that you start seeing more dedicated magical manuscripts, specifically, for example, with angel work, right? There's a lot, I'm thinking of, you know, the Dr. Rudd's nine hierarchical keys to the angels. And there's it's there's this strong, heavy Kabbalistic overlay to that. But you're right that when you look back at the earlier grimoires, two things kind of strike uh, me. One is exactly what you mentioned. When you look at um, the grimoire, I believe of, of Arthur Gauntlet, when you look at the Secrets of Solomon, a cunning man's grimoire, exactly. It was all about, okay, here are these techniques. I'm in this specific position. What can I do with the materials I have in the space that I have and the time that I have and how can I make it work practically? So I, I completely agree with you there. And one of the other interesting things that pops out is the farther back you go in general, because it kind of depends, but the more angels, quote unquote, and demons, quote unquote, or celestial, terrestrial, and infernal or chthonic beings Ooh, yeah. are all tr- are all treated the same. They are all conjured in very much the same way as, you know, I, you know, conjuro et confermo supervos, like I conjure and confirm you. And this happens all in the same way. Whereas the more you go on into the 1600s, 1700s, things kind of break a little bit with more exclusive angelic work. So I'm, I'm with you. Like there is this element of change and innovation there for sure. That separation of, uh, you know, angels and demons, I think, is is a really fascinating one. Um, you know, like back in the PGM days, uh, I think it was Stephen Skinner and his uh, techniques. I feel we're just we're just making everybody's book lists look so horrible right now. We're just name dropping <laughs> so many books. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, too much, too much coffee, too much, you know, <laughs> <laughs> too many books. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, he, he, uh, I think it's him that takes note of the fact that, like, sometimes the gods are even treated like they're just spirits, you know, and and in fact, sometimes they're even treated yes. kind of like hostily. They're they're bossed around the way a later magician might be bossing around the spirits of the Goetia 
or Goetia. However, we're saying that one. <laughs> that is that is so true. Yes, there is this much more direct, much more very, very practical focus. It's kind of just, it's right there. It is it is in your face almost to use a, I don't even know, 1980s, 1990s, for, I don't know where in your face came from, but it is, it is, it is totally there. And it is one of those things that really speaks to how things evolve over time, but also how things how things also stay the same. And, and, and to your point about how um, the techniques do stay the same in, in many ways. So for instance, whether it, whether you were the Jewish high priest going into the Holy of Holies, you're wearing this kind of phylactery, this, you know, bejeweled breastplate and that kind of transferred over in, in some ways into the phylactery for protection. There's a consecrated circle, a, a certain procedure, but you're right that things change and, all the grimoires that you mentioned and the, the secrets of Solomon and a cunning man's grimoire, those really do show how things evolve. And even more established grimoires are absolutely built on the shoulders of innovation. I mean, for example, uh, to pick the Lamegatons Goetia, right? The, probably the most well-known of the, of the grimoires came out, I think in 1641 in English, but anybody who, has a successful operation with a Lamegatons Goetia, anybody, is always in effect paying a shadow compliment to the Heptameron. And given the last year, which we can definitely talk about, the explosion of, of research with the Eleuchidarium Necromanciae, oh my goodness, that's changing like so much about the Heptameron that we know. But Wait, hold on, if you look- I, I don't know what that is. <gasps> oh, well, I, I would be happy to uh, uh, share. So uh, the... Heptameron came out in 1559 in, mm-hmm. the, excuse me, the first printed edition came out in 1559. And um, that had, it was translated by Turner, I believe in the 1660s into English about a hundred years later. So for the last four or 500 years, people have been using the Heptameron. Of course, the Heptameron attributed to Peter de Abano. Maybe, maybe not, but probably not, but we're going to attribute it to Peter de Abano. And it had the seven angelic seals and it had the uh, proper, you know, the long vinculum, the uh, exorcism of the spirits of the air. It had specific words, specific phrases in it, like Berlinensis, Baldachiensis, Paumachie, Etapologie Sedis, right? It had specific words that you see later in the Lamegaton's Goetia because mm-hmm. the Lamegaton borrowed so much from all of the conjurations. I, I shouldn't say all, but about 90% of the Goetia's conjurations come from the original Latin from the Heptameron. Right, right. So for the last 500 years, we were using that. And just in the, but to go back in 1508, Tritemius put together a list of books and it's on esotericarchives.org or .com as well um, that uh, condemned specific books and specific uh, practices and tomes that Tritemius found to be basically on the very bad list. And one of those books was called the Eluchidarium Necromanciae or the Eluchidarium Nigromanciae. And this, or the elucidation of necromancy. And he talks in this little tiny description he gives, because it was a list of about, I can't remember, like 60 or 70 books that he was condemning. Um, as he was condemning this Eluchidarium Necromanciae, as he was going through it, he mentioned, oh, 
here's a brief description. It talks about how to conjure demons and spirits of the seasons and of the hour and of the day to yourself. I'm paraphrasing. And people are like, well, that sounds a lot like the heptameron. Are you saying that there was a kind of almost like a proto or an early heptameron, but instead of being called the heptameron, it was called the elucidatium necromanciae, this elucidation of necromancy. And so for years, um, hundreds of years, pretty much everyone was using the heptameron. I remember, you know, of course, reading Dr. Lisuski's book, you know, uh, Ceremonial Magic and the Power of Evocation and the Heptameron. But uh, scholars here and there have said, oh, well, uh, for instance, there's a French scholar, Julien Veronese, that I know Joseph Peterson talks about. He actually did a study, I think in 2013, on this Lucidarium Necromanciae. And he's like, oh, yes, here's, here's a couple quotes from this, and here's what the book says. But people were like, wait a second, where's the full manuscript of this? Like, wouldn't it be great to find something that could be a proto-heptameron? And so a couple academic articles came out, and I remember speaking with Mihai Vartajaru, who runs the Studies on Magic blog. He uh, has been a previous guest on the podcast. And he just mentions right on the podcast, he was like, oh, yeah, there's there's an Eluchidarium in the Vatican Library somewhere. Um, you know, what? and I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds amazing, you know? And it, it was just kind of something that was mentioned and kind of dropped. And then one day, we were talking about the Eluchidarium, uh, just, you know, doing Facebook messaging and stuff like that. And Mihai was like, oh, hey, remember that Eluchidarium? Uh, I found the link, here it is. And he Wait, sent Wait, is, is it like scanned? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I, you can see it right now. So it, and so I, I'm looking at this manuscript and then, uh, you know, send it to Joseph H. Peterson and uh, Adley Nichols. And really in, in the past year, Joseph H. Peterson, Adley Nichols, Andy Foster, and a few other people have done amazing work on putting this putting this together. But for the first time, uh, there was a manuscript that we're looking at. And on first glance, you go, well, it's it's dated in 1569. So this is 10 years after the fourth book. So you're like, well, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, it looks like a heptameron, et cetera, except there are some really big changes in it. And most importantly, the insipid itself, the, the very first few words of the manuscript, multi experimentatores diverse monde, uh, there are many ways to operate in this divine art and science and hexencia oh, divina. Oh, 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 oh. That, that insipid, that intro lines, multi experiment, the, that's the exact insipid that Tritemius gave in 1508. So we are looking at a full Eluchidarium, a full proto or pre heptameron. And there are some really, really wow. interesting, interesting changes we can talk about. Yeah, but it is pretty amazing because for the first time in 500 years, I think Joseph H. Peterson's book is coming out in November of this year of 2021. Um, Everybody add it to your list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is incredible because he, uh, so that manuscript was discovered and then they're discovered or re, you know, recovered. People were looking at it more and more. And then another one called the Ghent manuscript had another, just a few months later, we were looking at another, you know, the Ghent manuscript, Molte Experimentator, like the exact same insipid. So here for the first time, 
there are these other editions. And then Joseph H. Peterson found another one called VSG 334, which was in a library in Switzerland. And all of these, in fact, he's uploaded them to esotericarchives.com. For instance, VSG, I believe you can see the entire thing right away up there. Um, The penmanship is just gorgeous too. And so there are these big changes. And most importantly, there's stuff that is in the Eleuchidarium in this kind of pre- Heptameron um, manuscript tradition that fills out some of the gaps in the Heptameron. Here's an example. In the Heptameron, uh, one of the things you're supposed to do is when you have the, they, they give you in the Heptameron, the 1559 Heptameron that we all know and love, has the seven angelic seals, for example. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really, it doesn't really show you, like it shows you have to write the angelic seal in the circle, but that's pretty much it. And it's like, well, what do you do specifically with the seal? Well, in the Eleuchidarium, in this, in, in the actual original Heptameron, it says that in, in this first manuscript, VRL 1115, uh, I nickname it the Queen's Manuscripts. I'm trying to get that to stick. It's totally not sticking because it was once in the, in the possession of Queen Christina of Sweden, uh, who, once she passed on, I it ended up in the Vatican. I will also call it the Queen's Manuscript. <laughs> yes! Eric, listen, if you are going to call it the queen, let me tell you something. If you do that, I guarantee you it is going to take off. That is going to be, that's I'll gonna be just huge. Re- and I'll, I'll uh, correct everybody who talks about it. Be like, oh, you mean the queen's manuscript? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. This is going to take on. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so in the queen's manuscript, it says... You, sh- you need to, if you're going to use the angelic seals, you need to uh, write them on either virgin parchment or on metal, on, on, on an appropriate metal. And not only that, so that it's like, wow, that kind of fills it out, but it gives specific astrological, to get back to your point, specific times to make the angelic seals. And it should be uh, during the uh, specific planetary hour, what? during the sign while while the planet is in its sign and i can get you the oh that is the same election that's in the uh box grove manual ah that is very similar to it um because the box grove manual actually pulls from the heptameron now that i'm thinking about it i wonder if it pulled from the elucidarium necro blah 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 Necromancia, yes, yes. Well, you know, I, 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 I think you really might be onto something because the exact quote is quote. It says more in the Queen's manuscript. It says, moreover, the general rule of the sigils is that they must be made on its hour and in the sign of the zodiac, and if not in the sign, at least in their hours. And I remember having there was this big discussion, and again. Adley Nichols, Joseph H. Peterson, uh, Andy Foster, Jake Stratton Kent. I, I, I know they've done some really interesting things with it. But in the sign, that was, at least to me, really confusing. And one of the things that was elucidated, so sorry, horrible pun later on, <laughs> was, was that the, the, the sign itself means the sign of the zodiac, meaning if it's on the ascendant. So if you're making a mercury, if you're using the archangel seal for mercury, if Virgo or Gemini in, in the hour of Mercury, ideally, if Virgo or Gemini is on the Eastern horizon and it's the ascendant sign, that would actually be a really good time to make it. But none of this was in the original Heptameron in 1559. So all of this information came from the Eleuch- Eleuchidarium Necromanciae that was before this elucidation of necromancy. So 
here we have this this is the actual book that all those years ago in 1508 when Tritemius was condemning these uh, demonic texts which you always have to wonder I, I can't remember who said this but when when you look at someone making a very bad book list the more they condemn it that's kind of a little wink wink that maybe the more you need to look at it you know oh, and especially <laughs> when it's Trithemius because you know that he was all yeah. about like oh this isn't a hidden message at all right. <laughs> but I mean right. his whole thing was hidden messages so yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and so if you don't just want to be a powerful wizard don't read these books wink wink <laughs> wink wink nudge nudge this is a, it's just a giant do not open sign and of course what's the first thing you're going to do you know well so that's interesting because uh the heptameron of uh of you know pseudo debano is um is part of the fourth book of occult philosophy um yes and one of the things yeah, that, I, I I have to think about this for a little bit because that that definitely has implications. That if there was another heptameron that Trithemius had access to, but Agrippa did not. Yes, so this is a really interesting thing, um, and you bring up a great point considering that uh, Agrippa spent a little bit of time with Trithemius as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, in fifteen fifty nine, what what from the discussions of the last year or so, what what one of the best guesses are, and I know that Adley Nichols or Joseph Peterson and or Andy Foster is going to absolutely correct me on this. So uh, just get ready for that, Eric. But okay, I'm ready. Um, okay. So is that when in 1559, when the fourth book was being put together, the people who originally put it together they knew that they were putting together this compilation because you're right. The fourth book is not just, of course, the Heptameron. There's the actual fourth book of occult philosophy and there's, a, you know, three or four other sections. I know, you know, yourself and Dr. Al Cummins, I know, is very familiar with it. Um, and so the the fourth book exactly was this compilation. Mm-hmm. And so so what we think happened is there was this original Eleucidarium, but what happened is in 1559, the people putting together the fourth book of occult philosophy synthesized it. In other words, they took a, probably took a a full Eleucidarium or some similar source, and they simply just took the pieces that they needed and they kind of smashed it all together. So in the fourth book of occult philosophy, as you and I know, if if, if you go through it, it'll say um, right at the very beginning, you know, that, you know, these are the magical ceremonies or the magical elements. And we thought it best, you know, as, as mentioned in the previous book, and they're, they're constantly making references back to previous books. And what's interesting is in the Heptameron of 1559, all of the stuff is almost in a perfect marketing way. It's squeezed into one section. So for example, for Sunday, you have the angelic seal of Michael. You have the astrological sign, the sun, the planet. You have Leo. You have the sign there. But then right underneath it, all in a neat little perfect, almost as if someone took it and was making a compilation, you have the angels of the air at the time, Varkon Rex and the ministers to Asandus and Cinnabal. You have the wind. You have the angels of the north, south, east, and west. You have all. You have the conjuration of the day, which I know is very famous. The the seven planetary conjurations. You have all of that right there, and then then it goes on to Monday and Tuesday and whatever day comes after that. So you have all of this stuff in one area. But what's interesting is in the Queen's manuscript in the kind of Eleucidarium, 
it's it's all at the beginning and it's all laid out much it's it's much more spread out and it's and it's all at the beginning so there was definitely someone who was the people who were putting together the 1559 heptameron made editing decisions and they also eric made sanitizing decisions and and this is all on this is on esotericarchives.com and i'm sure joseph peterson's going to get into into it more in his book but for instance Sunday, the angels of the air of the day, which should be the quote unquote, I don't like using this phrase, but the target spirits of an operation, you know, the, the ones that you're should be evoking mm-hmm. is, is Varkon Rex and the ministers, but they're not angels because in the Eleucidarium, they're called spirits, kings of the air that rule the air during this day. So in 1559, someone made a big sanitizing decision on this. Right. That's totally, I mean, that's a great callback or a great reference to sort of that thought we had before about how like angels and demons uh, used to be kind of the same stuff, but now you have this. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And Adley Nichols, uh, he came on on the podcast and he he did an entire episode on this so again i know that adley will correct me and joseph peterson will because i'm kind of flying off off the cuff here but an entire podcast on the luchadarium there's an luchadarium facebook page that that adley runs as well um since this came out but it was so shocking eric i mean it was shocking to see for the first time in 500 years some of these really really interesting and and significant changes and also details details about how to make the the signs of of the angels the actual seals the the sigils but to your point yes because when you look at the sworn book of honorius uh, for example from the 1300s so now we're talking 150 years before tritemius 200 years before tritemius was condemning the eleucidarian it has the same uh, names of the of the spirits of the air, but to your exact point, yes, the because you, you you bring up a really good point. Liber Uratus mentions that there are spirits who are all good. There are spirits of a mixed nature, of a mixed airy nature, and then there are spirits that are that are not so good. And it talks about how you know Christians should do this operation, and this one the pagans do, where they draw a lot of circles, but Christians really shouldn't do this. So there's these kind of caveats put in. But yes, this exactly gets to your point when it comes to the angels of the air are actually the kings of the air, these the spirits that actually trace back their names, believe it or not. And I know that Adley's talked about this before too, to the, the Arabic jinn tradition. Those are Arabic names. Really? Yes. Yes. Hmm. So for, ex- for example, and this is the only time when my taking Arabic in college can, can actually help, but... Um, the uh when when you look at Varkon, for example, Varkon Rex, very famous king from the Heptameron. Well, Varkon in Arabic is actually Barkan, and Barkan Melek, Barkan means two thunders or two lightnings. That's the literal translation in Arabic, for example. Because in Arabic, when when you want to say two of something, you add an on to it. So if you have one cup. It's cup, but two cups would be cup on, for example. So bar barakan or varkan is two thunders or two lightnings. I'm I'm I believe it's two lightnings. Or what about like isn't barak or baruk also like holy? Yes, yes, exactly. Like baraka in in Arabic, and my, my Hebrew is absolutely horrible, so I I won't even venture there. But thank goodness Arabic has a 
you know, Semitic relation relation there. But mm-hmm. yes, baraka means to bless or or to make holy, or it has implications of that. So baraka is to bless or blessing. So that is exactly right. And so these these kings, these angels of the air and the heptameron actually have their roots or at least their their names back to this jinnic tradition in the Arabic kind of Islamic magical world. And I love so that. that. Yeah. And that that is that kind of was like, wow, that's that's that was really incredible. The Angelic Seals was incredible. And throughout this time, you know, Adley Nichols and Joseph Peterson, Andy Foster, like we're going, I mean, literally going through like line by line, like, oh my gosh, what about this? What does this say? What does that say? But one of the most, the the thing that probably blew my, my mind the most was just from kind of a armchair magician, so to speak, but also from a practical side is the discovery or the connections being made of an entire other set of four kings that are used. So this this right. kind of blew my mind, Eric. Yeah, because like, you know, in the Lamegatons Goetia, mm-hmm. um, we have the four famous kings, you know? We have uh, Orians, Amaimon, Paimon, and Aegon. These are the right. the four kings that you use and Poke Runyon, right? Back even all the way back in 1996. He, oh, yeah. he was- I'm sure we, we've all got that in our magic circles somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I know. Talk, talk about book recommendations, everyone. Pick up your copy of Poke Runyon's books. Absolutely. Uh, Wait, does but, Poke Runyon, I don't think I have any Poke Runyon books. His, okay, the video that he made, What I forget what it was called, The Secrets of Solomon or the, but he actually has a companion book. That was one of the first books that I ever bought oh. on magic. Yes. And he was going into so many things that, I found out later were were his own, which, you know, definitely have respect, but his own interpretation and synthesis of things as opposed to the actual tradition. But yeah, it was, but yeah, so finding the discovery, and this is something that, you know, Adley and Joseph H. Peterson talk about, but Eric, it it blew my mind because, okay, for, for example, if you look at the Lamegatons Goetia, right, you have the 72 demons or 72 infernal spirits. Okay. But we know that the Lamegatons Goetia borrows at least 90 plus percent of all of its evocations, invocation, I mean, a large, large amount from the Heptameron. So when you go back to the Heptameron, though, you don't see any of the 72. Instead, you have these kind of strange seven kings. And so when you look at it, at least what I was doing is going, and, and we were chatting with Adley too, and Joseph Peterson is like, okay where do these seven kings fit in? They're not part of the 72, so to speak. There is obviously the king of Saturn, Maimon, for example, has some crossover. But Varkon, you know, not in the 72. And we're looking at these, well, where do these fit? Do these seven kings go under the four famous kings, you know, Orions, Maimon, Paimon, Nagan? No. And so this was about a year ago, Eric, because it just kind of blew things out of the water that, uh, Andy Foster and, and Joseph H. Peterson and Adley were looking at the Summa Sacra Magicae, the uh, book from the 1300s, a giant compendium. I think it's like 800 pages long. It's insane. It's in Latin and it has not been translated fully into English yet, but they were, uh, Andy Foster was going over passages and this is from around the time of Euratus and he found a passage 
that specifically talks about how the um, seven kings that we know, Varkon Rex and Archon and Maimon and, uh, you know, Suthrex, etc., uh, Samax Rex, Mediat Rex, um, all of these kings are actually under another set. It specifically says from the 1300s are under an entirely different set of, of kings. And those four kings are underneath another throne, uh, which is the throne of Genealogia, which Beelzebub sits on. So this this was blowing my mind. I know, and I'm sorry I'm throwing all this. It's just like for, for the last year and a half, work, you know, seeing what Adley and Joseph H. Peterson and, and Andy Foster are doing really blew my mind. Um, but yeah, so to bring all this back to the Heptameron and the Goetia, in the Heptameron, you say things like Berylinensis, Baldachiensis, Paumachiae, Apologia Sedis, right? And you say Genioliacide, for example. And I, I, I was always wondering, like, <laughs> what do those words mean, right? Like, right. Those, what do those words mean? What does Genealogia mean? What does Baldachia mean? What, what are these things in, in, a, in a very strong conjuration? It turns out, based on the research that Joseph H. Peterson and Adley and others and Andy Foster have done, when, when you're saying Berlinensis, Baldachiensis, Pamakie, and Apologia Sedis, what, what you're actually doing is you're naming the four thrones that four principal spirits are on. And one of those thrones is underneath Beelzebub. So I say all that to say, and I promise I'm done after this, but it was it, it just blew my mind, Eric, because for a long time, I think we were wondering where do the seven kings fit? And it turns out they fit, according to manuscripts from the 12 and 1300s, underneath this hierarchy that extends with four other kings and under Beelzebub. So it was just an incredible, I was like, all of this is like hinted at in the Heptameron? This is a mind, you know, blower. <laughs> it, it is a mind blower, but it's also like, it's just, a, it's also, it, it has echoes of the PGM in it still. You know, I mean, my yes. um, I, I'm part yes. of a I'm part of a hermetic lodge, and we do an Agathos daimon ritual every month. And the wow. chanting of of barbarous names that we do, like there are so many barbarous names that are, you know, uh, names of God out of the Bible or names of gods in other lands. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know that it is that is baffling. It's funny. It's funny because that, that's really cool. Yeah. It is really cool, and you you know you you come to pay more attention to it more and more the more you do it. But also, I'm pretty sure that uh, there's like the correct pronunciation of the tetragrammaton in there. And <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> who knows? <Yeah. laughs> you know, Eric, let me ask you this really quick. Do you feel that as you go through more of the rituals, as you you know intone the barbarous names more and more do you find that it kind of carries more more of an esoteric gravity for you does it does it tend to carry more more meaning more introspection more illumination or does it tend to stay the same per ritual um more i would say i think one thing that happens is you know the more comfortable you get with a ritual uh, the more it comes from your memory and from like the living part of your soul instead of, you know, being read off a sheet of paper. So, uh, yes. and, and, you know, you see it in a lot of uh, other PGM rituals where it's like, you know, repeat this seven times or, or you know, even in, um, even in grimoires where they're sort of like, you might have to say this invocation over and over and over again before something happens. I think a big part of that is because 
you need to get comfortable with the ritual. The ritual shouldn't be a distraction. You know, it's it's kind of like your vehicle. It's your vehicle towards towards like the right trance state. It's your vehicle towards the right sort of mental state, towards, you know, raising the right energy, towards all that kind of stuff. And if you're sitting there staring at a script and constantly looking back at the script, you are not maintaining any sort of altered state of consciousness. That is so beautiful. I I know that your very well-informed listeners will hopefully appreciate that as much as I do because yes, I, I think um, this, this might sound strange because like, I'm just like you, I'm very big on not using a script. I'm very big on memorization, for example. And someone might say, gosh, on, on the outset, man, that sounds like a lot of work memorizing. Actually, no, what it is, is you're actually saving a lot exactly to your point is once you have it down, then you can focus much more on exactly relaxing, getting out of your own mm-hmm. way and entering a, a, a specific consciousness shift, all that stuff. Absolutely. So I think yeah. that's wonderful that, yeah, that you do that. And I also think that it's important to remember that a lot of times, a lot of those prayers and stuff are kind of like suggestions. They aren't necessarily word perfect scripts. Like when you're getting to the barbarous names and when you're getting to the names of beings and stuff, yes, you should get those as close as possible considering the fact that we have no idea how anybody pronounced anything for real. Um, But the rest of it, you know, (laughs) the ability to, you know, uh, pray spontaneously or to understand like what goes into a prayer and sort of like recite it from the heart instead of off the page, I think is really important. Uh, This is one of the reasons I really like the, um, (laughs) we said so many grimoire names, I just totally blanked out. The Arbitel. One of the reasons I really like the Arbitel is the, the invocation is very simple. Um, yes. I, I kind of consider it to be, you know, aside from like all of the purity uh, stuff that goes on in there, there, you know, there's a lot of inner work that happens in the Arbitel before you're going to get any success with it. But uh, the invocation itself is simple and you can kind of keep in mind like the points that it's making and you can you can spontaneously sort of do it just by remembering like, this is what I'm talking about with this prayer. It's only, you know, like seven lines long. So it's not you know, impossible to memorize, but you don't really have to as long as you get the the heart of it across. Yes, yes. That is such a good point, Eric, because it is from the heart. And I, I for some reason, I'm thinking of two things. I'm thinking in drawing spirits into crystals. It's a very short prayer, angelic mm-hmm. prayer. And it even says in, in drawing spirits into crystals, it says having a brief, and I'm paraphrasing, but having a, a short prayer, having a prayer like this is much more effective than creating a table of letters, for example, a very complex thing. And so it, it's speaking from the heart. And I'm thinking of the book of Abramelin, which goes exactly to your point, Eric, about when uh, the author of the book of Abramelin is instructing his, you know, uh, son, you know, you need to learn how to pray. And he's like, I would write it out for you, but that would be silly. You have to learn how to pray from the heart. Oh you yeah. Have to inf- yeah. Inflame yourself, you know? Oh yeah. So that is so great. I, yep. I kind of consider that to be one of like the core practices, you know, when you're, when you're learning magic, you know, you got to learn how to meditate, uh, but you have to learn how to pray and you have to, and a lot of that comes from, of course, you're going to learn how to pray by reading other prayers and seeing what people are talking about and seeing how they speak to specific deities and specific entities. But I do think that that's like a really, really core part of a lot of grimoire work because so much, so much of the stuff that you're doing when you're working with spirits involves like getting out of your own way. Oh, that is, and how, how often, and I, I know I throw myself in here, do 
do I forget that and, and just want to jump right in. I, of course, I think when we all start, you know, like paging through, you know, poke Runyon's book or the Omegas is like, all right, let's get to summoning demons. This will be great. <laughs> and it's like, Oh my gosh. First of all, two things. One, uh, exactly what you said, like the amount of just getting out of your own way, learning. In fact, I was just chatting with Frater Acker, you know, based in Munich, Germany, who's wrote the Holy Diamond books and a book on Tritemius and just came out with a clavicula goetica. So this kind of goetic book. But one of the things he talks about is before he even did a ritual, he spent about three years just learning how to do all of that inner work, meditating, even just learning how to sit in a room for an hour and letting that kind of part of your brain that's freaking out, that it's not doing anything, just settle down, breathe. Mm -hmm. and, And how that in and of itself is, you're right, it's so important, especially when, whether you're working solo or you're working with a scryer, one of the key things is being able, as you just said, Eric, to get out of your own way and just be sensitive to specific signs or changes in the atmosphere, changes in the temperature. If, if a spirit is manifesting perhaps to a scryer or yourself, all those things require this kind of placidity of your mind. And if that's not there, I mean, to your point, it, it, it is so difficult I think, oh, yeah. to even apprehend anything. There's also yeah. a thing that happens like when you enter into that particular kind of ritual state where you have to kind of like trust your, your, phantasmal apparatus your internal sense right like it's not just sort of the placidity of mind there's the ability to kind of like listen in a way that isn't listening i'm not trying to sound like a zen master i'm it's 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 listening to your imagination right allowing the imagination to be a uh a mode of uh of perception Absolutely. That's that's a really good way to phrase it. And I think it might have been Aaron Leach who mentioned this, but to go along directly with what you said, it's 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 the way I kind of think of it too is when you are interacting with spirits or engaging in a specific operation, the spirits can communicate with you, but every single communication filters through this subjective objective mesh of your five senses your consciousness your state of mind the stuff that you know so for example if you're working with mikhail i think aaron leach brought up is you know knowing some of the history of mikhail and where mikhail comes from perhaps knowing that can help in in the engagement with the spirit but if you don't know that then the spirit might have other ways and so i i kind of think of it as if you take everything you know and experience and the, and the state of your mind is this kind of harpsichord and you push it gently outside the circle, the harpsichord is made of the keys of all of the information and experience that you have. And the spirits can play those keys and you can actually have an engagement in this case, you know, hearing the music of the, of the ritual. I'm being oh, so metaphorical here. No, but this is brilliant. This is, that's a brilliant way to look at it. I think. Uh, well, I'm, I'm well, sorry that I'm jumping to the end, but I guess I was just sort of realizing that this is totally like the, this is why correspondences are so key. You know, this is why, yes. this is why you get the right incense and the right colors and the right, uh, you know, foods and drinks and the right candles and the right whatevers is because you're, you're still sort of creating, you know, you're creating harpsichord strings with every single one of those. That that's an even better yeah that's an even better analogy yes and and let's say that you and I are doing this, the exact same ritual at the exact same time like you know a mile away in this beautiful secluded forest right but whether it's it's you and I doing a ritual at the same time or take take a hundred people doing the exact same ritual at the exact same time across the world well 
they're going to be pushing forward. We're all going to be pushing forward a hundred different harpsichords with a hundred different keys. And those keys are tuned to various frequencies based on exactly the correspondences that we're using, our back history. Maybe we studied in college or, you know, at, in, in school or I took an online course or we read a book or we heard from an oral tradition about this spirit or we have a direct engagement with our family members who pass this down, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one string exactly on the harpsichord. Whereas I might be, pushing forward harpsichord with keys that are similar, but might be different. And so if you have a spirit that's playing quote unquote, the harpsichord and ritual, the music, what, what you get back, the perceived audio visual, the, the thoughts, mm-hmm. anything that will sound quote unquote sound, but it, it will be a different musical piece, so to speak for each person. Like if we are doing, Oh, you know, it sort of talks about that sort of speaks to, I think a little bit of the way, you know, the, the world of perception we live in is, of course, a lie, as Plato told us. You know, he, he warned us a long, long time ago. Um, but uh, the intersection that these spirits have with this world comes from a place that is not, it, is, it isn't time and space like we experience it. So they have a mode of intersection that is not real. I mean, you know, not real in the material sense, Right. Yes, you are opening up a topic I love to discuss, and I, I don't usually discuss it that much um, uh, on air, so to speak. But yes, and in fact, I, this is a great and I, a great time to bring up our mutual friend Meredith Graves, who is amazing and wonderful and incredible. Obviously, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yes, and she, you know, I know, I know she's she's so she can say this so much better than I can. But she she speaks a lot about exactly the intersection of magic and technology and stitchcraft and all of these things that you know to kind of to use our analogy kind of tune those strings augment that consciousness to kind of you know work it in a unique way i mean meredith is so fantastic at 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 that and um what you bring up in addition to that is eric that everything is idiosyncratic meaning exactly what you what you put into the work, how you approach things with spirits is very important. But you just brought up a point about the fact that they're not, they come from a place outside of space time. And I'd love to discuss this with you because for example, I think there are people who, and I can throw myself in here, especially when I first started, right? I think there's this drive to want to, just like we want to fit spirits or everything into neat little boxes. I think we're also trying to figure out and confirm without a doubt where do spirits come from? And we're doing it within sometimes within this very materialistic model. So for instance, for instance, looking through the Lamegatons Goetia and saying, I want to prove that these are interdimensional beings via science. And I specifically, you know, we're going to get to a point one day where we'll be able to say, you know, without a doubt that the 72 spirits and the Lamegatons Goetia come from the ninth dimension because what happens is when the electrons are manipulated with these specific valence shells at a specific time, it does, and, and there's this, they kind of go down this rabbit hole of proving a spirit scientifically, but I don't think, I agree with I, what you're saying. Yeah, I don't think that there's, no. The, the scientific method is, is, you know, needs a materialistic worldview in, in order to operate, right? Like we can use the scientific method to look at the material world and discover incredible things and incredible secrets, but but it depends on a really particular 
mode of thought. I, I know that there's definitely like some sort of scholarly way to discuss this stuff, but but we forget that that the way that we think about things and the way that we like take stuff seriously or the way that we like treat our thoughts and our experiences seriously is so heavily influenced by the culture in which we're raised. We live in a materialistic world. We thrive in a materialistic world where where the secrets and hidden mysteries of science run everything we do. I mean, look at you and me. We're talking uh, over the ether a zillion miles away from each other. Uh, it's being recorded and it will be broadcast. Well, not broadcast, but it'll, it'll be available to download again over the ether from people that we don't even know. Um, right, right. You know, it's... it's uh, it's mysteries. It's mysteries that are very, very difficult to understand, but they're material mysteries. They are material mysteries. And don't get me wrong. Let's say that, you know, 300 years from now, we are to say, ah, well, the spirits, uh, you know, are, there is this kind of, you know, specific manipulation that happens on a physical level and it can be explained through a materialistic lens. Okay, that is, that is fine. However, to your exact point, and again, I'm sure there's a much better, much more you know, neurologically accurate way to describe this. But when you look at something like the hard problem of consciousness, for example, the fact that even the best neuroscientists now don't, we don't really know and have the entire brain mapped out. For instance, if, if we have a thought to pick up a glass and take a drink of water, that thought, and this is something I know that um, John R. King and, and others have mentioned too. If you pick up a glass of water, there is not a way you may be able to map out the specific neural patterns and these neurons are firing to trigger this, but, but scientists can't say where the thought came from to initially pick up the glass of water. You can explain neurophysiology in a materialistic way. Absolutely. Everything can be, can be explained that way, but that specific to use a very turn of, you know, 1900s, uh, term that I'm totally misusing, but will, for example, if you look mm -hmm. at the will of the individual, that is a mystery in many ways, even according to the best scientists. And so to your point, Eric, I do also um, get that deep sense as well, that all of these engagements, whatever tradition it is, you're engaging in this non-materialistic way that comes from something that is beyond space-time, or maybe a better way to say it is, as you said it, which is a non-materialistic lens. And by the way, that is not denying, you know, materiality, of course. Oh, like no, you, and I are, you can't deny materiality right? because of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know what we could add beyond this point, because that is literally the best, and that is the most true and best thing to say ever, so... <laughs> Yes. Well, well I mean, said. I, I'm sorry that I just had to say it that way. But but uh, we, you know, in terms of like looking at things in a materialistic or non-materialistic way, I think one thing that really helps is to is to try to figure out how you can kind of like flip that expectation of material of the material world on its head. You know, we you can't really use the material world as a test of realness for things in the non-material world, for instance. Um, and it could be that the material world, you know, so, you know, if you look at things from this, from the point of view of a neoplatonist, the material world arises from the immaterial, which means that consciousness pre-exists the body that holds it. You know, your consciousness uh, pre-exists the brain, so, or the mind, or whatever the heck you call the physical part of it, your, your shell in, in Kabbalah, the goof, the goof is not the first part of the soul that is created, it is basically the final 
manifestation in the material world. Um, so we have to think about like, I think Stephen Skinner reminds us of this all the time. Like you are a spirit, you are one, the same thing, you know, you have, uh, you have your own faculties and your own method of existence and your own overlapping over the different layers of reality. Um, that, you know, like, uh, one of the goetic spirits or or one of the planetary intelligences doesn't have you know they don't they don't overlap in the physical world um but we do share an overlap in a more spiritual world in a phantasmic world that you know, that allows us to communicate with them in whatever weird way we can so i think looking at the material world as something that emerges from an immaterial instead of the other way around helps with that yeah. Yeah. That is a really good way to conceptualize. I, I really like how you described that because it really talks about how, you know, when there is a successful engagement with the spirit, even though we are enfleshed in this Malkuthian dimension and the spirit perhaps might be in a, in a separate dimension of reality, not necessarily speaking of actual like quantum dimensions, but of reality, there are two different uh, uh, beings coming for an exchange that yeah that that there really is this kind of um to have an exchange there has to be a specific resonance or familiarity there meaning that there has to be a meeting a meeting place where both parties both uh you know spirit and operator for example are treating on the same plane and you can't do that unless as you said there is this kind of you know a reminder that we are spirits and yeah. we are engaging with them. It may be in a different way and it may be harder for them to manifest. Like I know Dr. Skinner's used the analogy before that um, it is very difficult. People always talk about, you know, full manifestation, you know, evocation to full manifestation, I think is how it is. And mm -hmm. you need, like Dr. Lasuski said, you need to apps every single time you need to see, well, Dr. Skinner talks about it. And I think this touches on your point, Eric, that, um, when someone is quote unquote pulling a spirit, you know, drawing a spirit, creating a certain esoteric gravity. So the spirit kind of orbits around the circle, whatever analogy we want to use, but build, building up magical tension and drawing in a spirit for an exchange that that is pretty difficult for the spirit to engage with and manifest because that's not, you know, a spirit is not necessarily ensconced or enfleshed or in this kind of Malkuthian coil that we find ourselves in. And Dr. Skinner used the analogy. He's like, let's flip it around. Imagine if uh, a spirit was calling you, let's say that you and I were right by the edge of a, a 12 foot deep pool and we're just chatting. And I think the analogy Dr. Skinner used is what if Neptune decided to call one of us down? I summon you, Eric, to the bottom of the pool. Now, you are being pulled in a ritual by Neptune. Now you don't, maybe you don't even necessarily want to go to the pool initially. Yes, you, you can do it. You can hold your breath. You can go all the way nine feet down and you can engage, but it's very, you know, it's very difficult. That is not your or my nature to be at the bottom of a pool. So he's like, imagine for a spirit, you're creating all this magical tension. Yes, it can happen, of course, but it's not as, easy you know for for them to do that and and this goes to your point about the correspondences the incense things that can make it a more conducive atmosphere so if neptune pulls eric down and i to the bottom of the pool well maybe neptune will put out some cool pool recliners that we can maybe sit he'll down like in. send up a diving bell <laughs> maybe they'll maybe we'll have an official neptune diving bell <laughs> yes 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's a really um, important thing for the magician to remember is, uh, yeah, there's a lot to think about there. There's a lot to experience. There's a lot of questions that uh, haven't yet been answered and maybe can't be answered. And I think that it just makes me think of more and more questions all the time. You know, I feel like every time I have some successful ritual some successful spirit contact. I might definitely learn some cool things, but when I come back, I just am sort of like, how the hell did that work? What the hell was I doing? What was I talking to? How, what, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just questions. It's always more questions. And reading about other people's experiences in grimoires sometimes helps and sometimes doesn't. Um, I mean, you know, gateways through light and shadow, of course, is like an incredible thing to read if you want to get like sort of, you know, I mean, who knows how much of that is accurate for people who aren't uh, Frater Ashen Chassan and his scryer. Like, was this a was this a metaphorical language that was given to them because they are able to understand it and because they could relate to it? Uh, or what? You know, you, you, it's not something that we ever really get to have a good answer for. Yes. And um, I remember speaking with Ben McStefan, who's Frater Ashen Chassan's scryer, who, who was with him during all of this, and, and, and speaking with Frater about this exact issue. And you bring up a fantastic point, Eric, and it even says in Drawing Spirits into Crystals itself that two people should always be present for what is apparent to one is not apparent to the other. And this goes ex- oh. this goes exactly to your point and the point about the harpsichords earlier. And Ben McStefan even mentioned that, um, you know, he's the scryer. So he's throughout all of this, through Gateways Through Stone and Circle, and then the second book, Gateways Through Light and Shadow, you know, he's there he's the one experiencing and, and, and scrying into the crystal. Sometimes the being is outside of the crystal. Sometimes, you know, there's, I mean, incredible, just mind blowing experiences, but this, this goes exactly to the point about what it says in the grimoire about how these things affect people or manifest differently depending on who the person is, um, their sensitivity to it. Also to your point, and this Eric goes to your point earlier about memorization, but having a scryer too, I know both Ben and, and Frater Chassan mentioned this, is just, it, it frees you up. You know, if, if, if you're the magician, you can focus on the invocations, the evocations, paying attention to things, and the scryer can just passively you know, scry and report back. So it kind of frees up a little bit of, of cognitive bandwidth as well. But you're right. And then, you know, Ben McStefan, Frater's scryer, told this amazing story. And I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but he mentioned that, you know, he's a Celtic, pa- you know, pagan, basically. He is a, a, you know, he practices Druidry, I should say. That's the more accurate term. He's he's uh, a Druid. So he's not a Christian, but he he related the story about scrying with Frater Chassan. Um doing the classical invocations of drawing spirits into crystal that at when the angels were present, the celestial beings is a more accurate term that just at the mention of the name Jesus, for example, Ben, who's not Christian at all, just could say as a scryer, he was like, I could just feel the immense love that was coming out of these beings just by the utterance of that name. Hmm. And, and he's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Druid. And so I asked him about that and he used this analogy. I'm, I'm curious, Eric, your thoughts on this analogy, because we were talking, it's like, well, gosh, like, you know, how does that fit into, 
you know, your understanding, Ben, is Druid. And he used this analogy of um, in, in reality and in, in all the engagements of spirits, it's like if you have, remember like Lord of the Rings, like the Misty Mountains, and you have, you have this beautiful mountain range, one mountain range covered in mist, but there are these peaks that, that are, are peaking up every now and then. And those peaks are the different traditions we have. So it's the same mountain range, but it manifests or reveals itself in reality through different peaks. So for example, one peak could be the Christian apprehension of an angel as a messenger of the triune God, for example. But then another peak, which is the same mountain range, and people don't know it's the same mountain range because it's all hidden under the mist of, of the Smalkuthian coil we're in. But another peak might be the Celtic Druid uh, conception of the goddess and another one may be Anael and one may be the Islamic equivalent, you know, so it's just this beautiful analogy. I think that, that you were touching on earlier, just about how these things affect us differently. Yeah. And honestly, like that's an old idea. You know I mean? That, that goes back to like when, when Rome would go trouncing around conquering everybody, they'd be like, Oh, you worship Mercury too. You just call him Odin or whatever. You know I mean? Yeah, we, exactly. We've we got yep. that concept around al- already. It's fascinating that he had that that kind of experience. That I mean, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, and I and I think one of the biggest things. And I tell me if if we're both understanding this correctly, because the gist that I'm getting to is in our conversation here that the most important thing instead of trying to prove that the spirits are multidimensional beings or proving that they're aliens or proving that they're actual demons or proving that they were demons but they were that they were gods but they were christianized and the demons instead of trying to do all that just simply approaching the spirits on their own terms letting the ritual speak for itself and getting out of your own way and i guess i'm curious your thoughts too eric because when I hear people, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I love armchairing stuff. I mean, the Eleucidarium, like <laughs> discovering new manuscripts. It's it's so amazing. I love it. But I think one of the most important things is when it kind of goes back to the word occult, right? Occult means hidden. Like, there's a certain element of this that is bathing in the mystery that maybe we, as, as you said, Eric, a few moments ago, maybe we might never understand that mystery. And that's okay, because maybe it's about being a cult. Maybe it is about bathing in the mystery. I think that definitely, I I think that that plays out with my experience so far. I think that we we see hints of this too in a lot of stuff. Like for instance, um, the uh, Abramelin working, you know, where it talks about sort of like reaching a place where certain things aren't needed, or you have like the the you know the line between like thaumaturgy and theurgy, where where we have ritual and we have acts and we have stuff that we're supposed to be doing that's sort of like elevating ourselves or preparing ourselves. Uh, you, we can go back to the Corpus Hermeticum. You know, book 13 of the Corpus Hermeticum, Hermes Trismegistus comes down to his son and he's like, oh, I've finished all my magic rituals. I'm totally like a being of pure energy. Let me show you how to do this. You know, we're not we're not here to prove the existence of spirits. You know, the the fact that we are existing and and motive and and can move under our own will and can even imagine free will shows that you know our spirits are real what we're supposed to be doing is like getting ready i think 
Yes, 100%. It is, it is getting ready because, you know, people, people think of, um, and it absolutely is, uh, self-transformation. There's so many different spiritual paths and, and different, as you said, religions or mystical paths you can follow. But yes, you know, ritual, mm-hmm. ceremonial magic, engagement with the spirits, that is absolutely as self-transformative as you can get. In fact, just to get a little humorous here, I, I'm, I'm sure you might enjoy this too, but one of the, one of the most humorous things I find is, uh, and I remember years ago uh, finding this uh, as well, many years ago, but people who initially, you know, maybe they're online and they see some of the, the goetic, you know, demon seals and they're like, I'm going to get into demonic magic. And when you, when you actually, th- then they open the Lamegatons Goetia and it's like, you must pray and go to confession and fast for nine days. And you must do all of these holy things and get closer to the divine, whatever that, you know, this is written in a Christian context, but whatever that conception of the divine is. And all of a sudden, like you can see, I I have seen some people's reactions. Like I thought this was about summoning demons. Why do I have to become holy? It's like, yes, there is a self transformative aspect to this, you know, (laughs) it's one of it. Yeah. It's honestly one of my favorite topics. You know, I, 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 try to work on that self-transformation stuff as much as I possibly can, probably more than I do other magic. And um, because, you know, it's it's emphasized over and over in almost everything you read, how important it is to be doing that stuff. So, uh, and it's a lot of work and it's hard and I fail all the time. <laughs> you know, let me ask you this, Eric. Well, first of all, I, I am sure even even on days when you feel like you might not be, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you are. Um, but how is it like for you? Because something that our, our mutual friend, the amazing Meredith Graves, I was chatting with her and I love your thoughts on this too, is how did COVID affect, you know, just being, in, you know, global pandemic, everything's disrupted around February, March of 2020. Did that, did it affect it? Because I've, I've heard people say that it really kind of affected them and it disrupted it. But then I heard other people saying, oh, I had a lot more time to do ritualistic stuff. Well, I had a lot more time to do ritualistic stuff, but I think I used it to watch cartoons. (laughs) Touche, touche. You know, it was, uh, I mean, I guess uh, one thing that was very fortunate for me is that I uh, am a freelancer and I work from home. So the big change for me is that like my social life was destroyed, but my... Yeah. But the rest of my life kind of stayed the same, so it wasn't as huge a shift for me. It definitely interrupted my ritual work and kind of threw a lot of stuff out of whack for me. I don't think it made my magic less efficacious. I don't think it really got in the way of a lot of that stuff. Yeah, but I do, you know, I've I've kind of had, I've heard mixed things too. I do know that it, it kind of like disrupted my regular practice for quite a while. It took me, it took me a few months to kind of like get back in the swing of things because stuff was freaky. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, uh, um, yep. I mean, luckily Oregon did not get hit very bad. I mean, we, you know, not, not to say that we didn't get hit at all, but like the effect that, that, uh, that we had from COVID was, um, you know, thankfully, uh, far, far less severe than than a lot of other states and places got hit, but it still shut everything down. You know, everything was shut down. People were scared. No, nobody really knew what to do. I, you know, it's 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely had more free time, but uh, the psychological effect, I think, is one of those things that it was really, really difficult to be super aware of. Um, and it was, it was actually, it, it was, uh, it was a little bit of an eye opener. In in December, I got to go um, spend the holidays with my parents. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and we okay. sort of like made a deal. We're like, okay, you have to like super quarantine yourself for like fourteen days and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things that I remember about that is like they came to pick me up. And, um, and just like this feeling of joy or like, or like this, this mopiness sort of like drained out of me. And I was like, holy shit, I wasn't even aware. I didn't realize how, how much I was being affected, uh, which was, which is humbling. You know I mean? When you're, when you're doing all of this work all the time, you want to feel like you have a much better handle on how your own psyche is doing and how your own mental health is. But it's a, it was definitely a reminder that like, you don't get to be all knowing even when it comes to how your own spirit is doing. You know, there's, there's always a lot of mystery happening. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yep. That's so true. It's, it's almost like a dimmer switch, like, Mm -hmm. you know, slowly, slowly. And then you don't even realize it until it's been, you know, sex, six, seven, eight, nine, ten months in. And you're like, Oh, like, like you said in December, like, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing, seeing your folks and it's, and all of a sudden feeling that total shift and everything draining out. You're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even know. It's like the, uh, you know, the frog in the, in the pot of water. Yes, yes. Slowly, slowly increasing. And the frog will just be comfortable until they're cooked. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I know. That's one of the things I I found too is is just giving, and I've chatted with a few people about this that touch exactly on your point, Eric, which is just not feeling even though sometimes there might have been a lot more time, or you're like, wow, there's all this, or oh my gosh it's simultaneous. This is horrible. Obviously like a horrible pandemic, just giving yourself that time for mental health and taking time for your own, your own way to um, navigate reality, because obviously it still is. It was an incredibly hard, tragic, trying time. And I think some people, I know myself, um, I think rituals and especially rituals that you're used to doing at a certain time, they can be absolutely stabilizing and anchoring and empowering. But at the same time, if you find that the magic quote unquote, or the ritual is interfering with in some way, your other needed mental health things, you know, Mm -hmm. self care and, you know, making sure to get enough sleep, all that stuff, just to kind of balance that out. And I think that that was one of the things I, I know Meredith's touched on that very eloquently elsewhere, but like, doing that is just like finding that equilibrium because you're right. I mean, I know, and I'm, I'm curious if you're the same way, like I, I had to really get back to kind of the base of the pyramid, like those, those, those rituals, those specific things that are really anchoring. And as Josephine McCarthy say, says, you kind of, you know, clear out all the gunk and you just kind of focus on the foundation because the way my brain works sometimes is it's kind of like an engine and it just keeps going until it overheats. And then I'm just like, ah, I need to take, you know, several days to just recuperate. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, I think what you're touching on too is something similar about sometimes you don't even know, what's going on psychologically, especially obviously in a once in a lifetime, hopefully pandemic. Um, Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, you just see all that and it's like very, very hopeful, you know? Uh, But um, you know, just getting that, that sense of trying to find that, that balance, especially with, 
you know, mental health and then what rituals? I mean, what do you think about it? Yeah, you know, I was just sort of thinking about like, I think one of the things that, that especially like practitioners who have gone sort of gone through that sort of thing need to take away from it is that this can be another learning experience, right? Like, what can you do to notice this if it happens again? Like, hopefully we don't have another pandemic, but let's say there is another let's say something else happens in the future that does have long lasting consequences, which I guess probably everything that always happens in your life has long lasting consequences. But how can you, how can you see what the consequences are when they are not obvious? How can you avoid being the frog in the boiling water? Like how can you, um, what kind of rituals can you do to prepare for that? Or what sort of things can you do to kind of like, ready yourself for that and you know I guess these are questions that I'm asking myself that I don't totally have an answer for yet uh, and I suspect that these are going to be you know everybody's probably going to have to do their own work on it which is definitely a frustrating answer to give but um, yeah I guess uh, I guess definitely there was an element of coming out of I mean you know here in Oregon the our numbers are so low that that you know a lot of restrictions are being dropped and we're down to like low risk in most counties and stuff and so there is this sense of like people coming out of their shells and people coming out of their houses again and I think that as practitioners it's our duty to sort of like as we do come out of it figure out what we can learn about our own practice and our own like spirit and how we can I don't know prepare for next time yeah, yeah. That's in fact when, when you were mentioning that, I was thinking about something Josephine McCarthy and others have touched on, like the patterns and egregores and mm-hmm. these kind of like all of us are, as you say, we are spirit. We are engaging in not a, a smooth pond, but we're we're in this ocean of other elements. Everything, whether it's you know the traffic, the environment, are the thoughts in our head. We're all clashing around, but we're also these kind of scintillating patterns and figuring out you're right that was something that i i still as you say constantly just every day trying to figure out which is what are some of the the patterns you know mm-hmm. why do why do i think this certain way how, how come when i do this maybe a couple of days later this might happen esoterically or this might happen psychologically and i think you're right like building that into even a ritualistic framework where every day, if, if there is a solid anchoring ritual or something that, that you'd like to do, um, something like that can really be a beacon. It can, it, it can also act as an anchor, and, but also it can shine the spotlight on maybe patterns or ways of thinking that, as you say, it's just kind of burning the dross, like letting go of and adapting, you know, like, mm-hmm. wow, I was really, I was really getting up every morning and I was, I was thinking this, or I was approaching it this way, like, wow, but after doing this ritual or doing meditation, uh, things that are really, it sounds almost, oh, well, yeah, we know meditation, but it's like, no, like that's to me, like that's the base of the pyramid. Like that's really oh, yeah. cleaning out all of the, all of the gunk and, and figuring out what, what patterns are you engaged in every day? You know, what, what is that trillion threaded, you know, woven fabric that is you and, and how can you pull on some of the strings to maybe loosen here or tighten there? And how can you do that? Yeah. It's, so important yeah 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 it does make me feel like i'm i I should probably uh you know that's gonna go on my list of things to do (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, me too. Hey, me yeah. too. Every day, every day is a new opportunity is, is, is a new challenge and a new opportunity. So Eric, I am, yeah. I am right there with you. <laughs> you know, you were, you were talking a little bit about a little bit ago, you, you called it like armchairing about how, how much you love armchairing on certain things. And I was just thinking like, ah, oh, Alexander, as occult podcasters, we are the ultimate armchairers these days, aren't we? We're, we're basically like the armchair magicians who put it all on show. Like, look, look how good we are at this. <laughs> oh, my. Well, and, you know, it's it's uh, I mean, gosh, I was I was listening to. Yeah, it's it's um like I was listening to one of the awesome episodes you were do, doing with um T. Susan Chang, and mm-hmm. I was listening to another episode that I was sharing with you with Sam Block, you know, both of whom are amazing. And yeah, it is kind of putting on display the latest. It's it's to me, it's kind of both sides of the spectrum. It's like it's the latest things. It's it's kind of like what is what is the new the, like how are you specifically practicing and engaging with the tarot, for example, and what's going on, but it's also connecting those traditions back to their original application and what's the relationship there or as you and Sam were chatting about you know you look at the the corpus hermeticum and and you just look at this incredible tapestry i mean just a just a menagerie of 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 history and books and relationships and you're right all of that is kind of put on display and yeah in terms of armchairing i mean just like with the luchadarium stuff you never know when the i mean right now eric in some library in Istanbul, I'm sure. There are grimoires that are just sitting there that have not been translated yet, that have been sitting collecting dust for 300 years. Or maybe it's in the library. I know I've heard, uh, who is who is mentioning it to me? I, I can't remember, but people discovering uh, books in libraries in Arizona. And I mean, just all over the place oh, that yeah. are from just mislabeled or, or categorized. Oh, this is a prayer book. And meanwhile, it's like another Eleutrodarium proto-heptameron grimoire, but it's just a <laughs> prayer book, you know? So yeah, yeah I mean, I mean you're right. The, you know, the sworn book of Honorius, like the first friggin' three quarters of it is a prayer book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you look at if you if hundred percent, I mean, the first, yeah, pretty much like, and, and and if you compare the sworn book to the Arsenatoria, I mean, so many of the prayers are the same, and exactly, mm-hmm. it's like it is, it's it's all about the relationship that you have with the divine, and 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 to me, that's like, that's whatever the the divinity is for you, because all of us approach it differently, just as you were saying a few moments ago. I mean, so many of us might want to um, approach rituals or grimoires or ceremonial magic. But as soon as you start practicing, to me, Eric, it's like you start developing your own idiosyncrasies. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we hear a lot about, and I think people say sometimes, um, maybe sometimes a little dismissively about, oh, this person's a grimoire purist, or this person's a grimoire traditionalist, or this person's this and that. And let me just say right at the outset, if anyone ever comes up to you and says, well, this is the way you have to do it, and that's not, to me, that is inappropriate, that's not correct. And frankly, the number one rule of all magic is, hey, if it works for you, do it. You know, if if you're getting results, absolutely do it. But one of the things that I've noticed is, People who I initially consider, and I think might might be people who practice um, by the book, so to speak, or a grimoire traditionalist, the paradox is for every person like that that I'm thinking of, actually they have their own idiosyncratic practice that is well beyond the grimoires. I mean, for instance, uh, look at Frater Ash and Chassan. 
his first book, Gateways Through Stone and Circle. He and he, and he does right. He walks through the grimoire, drawing spirits into crystals step by step. If it calls for an ebony wand, he's getting an ebony wand. If it calls for a one and a half inch tangerine-sized crystal to be mounted with a gold frame around it, he's going to do that. And and he does it by the book. However. In the same book, he also talks about his own construction of an altar of the stars, where it's this it's this, this brand new construction that he had where you place the crystal and the pedestal on. And then, as, as you touched on, Eric, with your own rituals, as soon as Frater and Ben McStefan started engaging with the spirits, well, now you're, you're getting information and things that are not even in the grimoire. So to me, when I hear grimoire traditionalist or, or grimoire purist, I think that term can kind of get thrown around, but I think that the people who do practice it by the book, the ultimate beautiful thing is actually those people come up with more innovation and more idiosyncratic practices applicable to them. And I think I think all of us should strive for that. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. I guess I, I hadn't really considered that particular um, angle on grim, grimoireic purity, grimoireic traditionalist stuff. Uh, and that's, I think, a really valuable one. You know, one of the things that I love the most about doing magic at all is sort of like the intersection with arts and crafts. Like, you know, I am not an awesome yes. artist, but I, but because of because of my practice, I am constantly like making things and, you know, sculpting things and carving things and drawing stuff and doing. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing how much it inspires you to to be like, oh, I've got to go. I I better go on Amazon and see if I can find papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> that is and so true. <laughs> that is so true. And Eric, like you have so many skills that I'm sure you've you've cultivated over so many years. And yes, like I I remember being so nervous the first time that I was I was like, wait, I have to order like goatskin parchment, and then I need to take this goose quill that's been consecrated, and I need to write like a, a hexagram on it. I'm going to screw this up. Like, what am I doing? I remember like thinking that, but you're right. Like it, it gets you into that. I mean, I remember the first, uh, a Spurgulum, you know, the first key of Solomon sprinkler that I, mm -hmm. that I made, I remember getting a Dremel, like an electro, like a, an electric Dremel tool with like a diamond tip. And I just remember like consecrating that as, as like, uh, one of the tools of, of ye art and science. And I remember like my hand shaking, I'm trying to get the sigil. I mean, you're right, but, but, oh, but yeah. it really does make you know, like you, but you learn so much about that, like arts and crafts, like you're mm -hmm. saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. I remember talking to uh astrological magician, uh, Josh Proto. He's, he, he's a local Portland guy, but he was telling me about when he first started learning how to like carve gemstones. Like he did it because he, is a magician and he's like I'm going to learn how to do this for real uh, which is something that I've still never attempted uh, even after listening to his description of how he does it I'm kind of like gosh I don't know <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> but, I, but at the same time you know I mean I um, I got a, a seven stringed lira so I could like play around with you know musical note stuff after reading you know uh, uh Jocelyn Godwin's book about that stuff and like you know so it's constantly wow. inspiring you to do new things and and pick up new forms of art and things of that nature which I love and and the number of of incredible occult artists who are out there doing stuff too it it's, oh yeah it's amazing I oh it's so beautiful yeah mm -hmm. and ju just like you were saying I mean so many things that are um 
whether it's learning to engrave gemstones, which does sound, by the way, very, <laughs> I, my, my hand would be, it would be the worst, whatever carving it would be the worst. So just be one like diagonal line right through the gemstone. And I, that's, that would be my thing. It totally, you know, it makes me think, you know, you see all of those pictures in the PGM where it's like, this is a bad stick figure and it's Mercury. And you're like, okay, I could do that. But can you right. do it in a gemstone? <laughs> right. Oh, now you had to say gemstone is the caveat. Lovely. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so true, Eric. It is so true. And and yeah, like all of those. I mean, gosh, like when I think about like the key of Solomon, for example. I mean, I remember seeing some forms where it's like, well, if you really want to do this by the book talk about that it's like you, you know you would forge your own sword uh oh. you know be so it's like you'd have to be a uh calligrapher mm-hmm. you'd have to know how to you know skin animals to make parchment you would have to be a blacksmith you have to be an herbalist you'd have to live probably out in the woods you know where you can you'd have to build your own you know place for practice you'd have to do all of this stuff you know that and even and even obviously you know maybe we're not doing all of that but just the fact that you're there eric like having all of these these auxiliary uh, talents and skills and you, you're kind of developing that to me I don't know this sounds totally cliche but I've said it before is like it's really not about the end so to speak as much as the journey and so to me obviously there are specific spirits and specific operations of course and, and things that you want to engage with that's absolutely you know critical but I, I was just chatting with someone the other day that we always make a big deal about materia magica, right? Like mm-hmm. I want the perfect ebony wand. I want the perfect sword. I want the perfect aspergillum. But we often forget, because I forget all the time, that the most important in many ways, materia magica is yourself, you know? Oh, like, yeah. Are you consecrated? Do you know how to do arts and crafts? Even you know, learning arts and crafts, you're like, what does that have to do with magic? And as Meredith Graves and others have so beautifully talked about, that is a self-consecratory experience, really. Like mm-hmm. if you're stitching your own clothes, if you're doing arts and crafts, I mean, that that is the magician. That is part of the path, you know? It's just oh, really absolutely. cool. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I love that part of it. You know, I mean, I sew my own altar cloths and I sewed my own magical robe and I do a lot of sewing for magic, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, it, that is totally awesome. Agree. Yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. I know that Meredith is is cheering right now, and yeah, uh, I'm uh, I'm really excited that she's finally going to listen to my podcast. <laughs> no, you know, Mer- <laughs> I I tell you what, I I think I think you know you and Meredith have so much in common because it really hits on that number one theme that we've been we've been talking about, which is. There are so many different traditions, so many different grimoires, so many different spirit catalogs. But one of the things that that's consistent, and both you and Meredith do this, is approaching something with sincerity and approaching it not in a materialistic way of I'm going to work with spirit, you know, this spirit to get this. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a much more holistic but also idiosyncratic approach. I mean, so both of you may have different approaches to things, but you're doing it because you have found, and I found this too, like the efficacy of whatever it is you're doing has gotten results and is an ever deepening path that frankly, and this goes back to our conversation about the word occult and how it means hidden, will never end. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could pull down 72 veils uh, from the altar of the occult and there will still be, you know, 72,000 more veils that are still there, you know? Oh yeah. It's just part of that mystery. And that sounds like a lot of really cool fabric too. (laughs) 
<laughs> fabric that you would know how to stitch, my friend. <laughs> well, Alexander, we've been talking for a long time, and I feel like there's there's a ton more that we could continue talking about, but but we should probably spare the listeners because they probably want to go back and listen to another episode of Glitch Bottle now. Uh- uh, you mean Arnomancy? Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, they're listening to Arnomancy <laughs> now, but you know, I mean, when I make my podcast playlist, I totally switch it up. Uh, <laughs> Touche. Usually, it's because like, oh god, these these uh, these Schwepp episodes are too heavy. I can't li- I can't handle more than one of them in a row. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I, well, I, I still haven't even caught up with Schwepp. I think I. Uh, you know, I take a break from it every once in a while. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to get some advice from you on on how to yeah how to how to organize my my playlist because I'm like I'm like so all over the place. So I'm I'm gonna need some some pro tips from uh, from from Eric. Okay, here here is here is an easy pro tip. Uh, uh, I do this with both uh, podcast playlists and books. You get ooh, ooh, ooh. you get uh, things that are difficult that are challenging to your mind. You know so. You know, uh, Stephen Skinner interviews on Glitch Bottle, for instance, or or uh, deep dives into Plato on Schwepp or whatever. You get the you get these really complicated ones, and you space those episodes out with lighthearted, easy episodes. So that way, um, you listen to something difficult, and then you kind of listen to something easy. It gives your brain time to rest, and you're sort of like laughing at something instead of trying to absorb information. And I do the same things with same thing with books. You know, I will have. Uh, you know, I'll read a grimoire or I'll read, uh, you know, some dense history book. And then I will read a really dumb mystery where I can tell who did it by page 10. But I'm just doing it because it's like brain candy. You know, you have to yeah. you have to give yourself a break hmm. every once in a while. Man, that is a real and especially for someone like me who, you know, tends to just keep going and going until like the engine overheats. I think that's such a that's such a really practical and wonderful piece of advice thank you yeah, yeah i will totally i will to- i will totally have to start and i'll have to start doing that with my books too yeah okay but you know? you know you're you're the guest so now you have to give my listeners a piece of advice um but i don't listen to listen to the arnie mancy podcast every day <laughs> please do it it is good for your body mind and soul Ooh, ooh! i'm using that as an ad everywhere <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my <laughs> so how can my listeners uh find you online oh well uh i am at youtube you can always find me on youtube uh you can find glitch bottle on uh glitchbottle.com of such an innovative title might i add a beautiful url that's so i i couldn't come up with anything um i actually don't even really know by the way, where Glitch Bottle came from. I, I don't know where the title came from. Really. You know what's really funny? Um, uh, I, I was thinking about uh, about the name today. Um, because when you read like advice on like how to start a podcast, they're always like, make sure the title of your podcast tells <laughs> listeners what they're getting into. And I'm like, well, I didn't do that. Glitch right, Bottle didn't do that. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, Artemancy, exactly. Artemancy, like, obviously, once you, you know, find out a little bit more, you're like, oh, yeah. But, like, on the outset, you're right. You're right. Yeah, so yeah. it's because we're a cult. 
It's, it's, <laughs> hidden, it's true. Hidden knowledge. Uh, okay, so glitchbottle.com. You're, you're on Twitter, but you don't. You're, you're not not a lot. Uh, oh my so, goodness! Yes, I'm so bad with that. But I, I I am trying, Eric. I'm trying to be better on that. But yes, I'm not uh, YouTube... sure that that trying to be good at Twitter is a virtue. But you know that's true. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. In between grimoires, uh, in between grimoires, you get on Twitter, tweet a few times, yes, share some yes. memes about cats. <laughs> Absolutely, occult cats for sure. You got to have a good familiar every now and then. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm on. Uh, yep, Twitter, Facebook, um, glitchbottle.com, Instagram. I'm on Patreon as well, and uh, I know Arnamancy is as well. So please mm-hmm. support support our, all the listeners support Arnamancy on Patreon as well, because I think, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's, uh, that's just such a great, you know, great way to show support. But truly, I, I think like you were asking also Eric about advice and I think it's just, um, keeping an open mind and not being afraid, not being afraid to try something because you think you've worked it out in your head, whether it's a ritual or anything. And you think, you know, what the answer is going to be because the Ooh, one thing, yeah. The one theme that I've come back to, and I can't remember who said it, I think it was Friday Chasson, is this. If you do a ritual, could be big or small, doesn't matter. If you do a ritual, say you're contacting a spirit, and if the ritual goes exactly as you planned with no element of strangeness, no surprise, and you got exactly what you asked for with the kind of manifestation that you asked for, were you really doing it? right? Were you maybe playing some mental games? Was it really that successful? Whereas so many people I talked to, and you touched on this too, Eric, at the beginning, in terms of getting things outside of the correspondences, is there's always an element of strangeness, of otherness. And so embracing that, I think, would be. And so don't don't get caught, because I've, I've got caught here. Don't mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. that you've worked it all out in your head, and that's how it's going to be. You got to jump in. You got to look for the harpsichord strings. They're never going to be ah. where you're expecting them to be. <laughs> yes, very. That's yes, very. Yeah, yeah. Well said. <laughs> well, thank you so so much for uh, for allowing me to be your first podcast host. Uh, Eric, the, the 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 honor and pleasures is tr- truly mine. Uh, you do absolutely incredible work, and uh, it's it's just wonderful to see. And and so it is it is truly an honor just to to chat with you about this. It's been it's been great. So just thank you so much for for having me too. Yeah, I I look forward to uh, having you on again after we've had time to like uh, sit on everything we've talked about today and maybe read some more of the elucid. Darium Necromancia. <laughs> Perfect. Did I get there that? There you go. All yes. Right. Cool. I love yeah, it. I can't wait to go look that up. I totally have not heard of that yet. So I'll uh, I'll be bugging you about um, a link to put in the show notes for that too. <laughs> you got it. Absolutely. I'd be happy to send you, yeah, anything and everything. All right. So, great. Well, then until it. next time. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy Podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.